Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, Richard Dahl is a, a very popular man. And today I could have spoken about many aspects of Richard's life. I could have spoken about his work as Regis Professor of Medicine while he was here, how he brought clinical medicine to the university. I could have talked about him establishing Green College and uh, also about how he set up the Agnostic Adoption Society. Um, but I want to begin with today, I'm going to talk about um, smoking, since it's the great arc of Richard's uh, life as a scientist. But I thought I'd begin a bit with uh, the biographical art and how I met Richard. And indeed, the first time I met Richard Doll, he cried. Now, for any of you who, who knew Richard, this had been an unusual thing. And uh, this wasn't because he discovered how little I knew about medicine. That would come later, um, because I'm a historian and a writer. Um, but he, the reason why he cried was that he had this great emotional response to a story he was telling me about his march when he was on the Jarrow March as a medical student in 1936. And I thought as a writer, this is an extraordinary thing. Um, this is a great window into the, the life of a scientist and that he's vulnerable. And all I needed to do was some more digging so I could get a sense of the man. And that's really one of the purposes, of, for me, of writing a biography. And like any good writer, or like any writer, I don't think I'm a good one, I started with a great sense of optimism. However, for those of you who knew Richard or indeed worked with him, um, Richard was far from being an open book. Um, he uh, was accustomed to... I mean, he had a kind heart, but he was accustomed to um, diluting his heart with his great intellect and subordinating his heart to his intellect. Um, John Pemberton, one of his colleagues in the 1930s in London, said rightfully that Richard was gentle and kind, and indeed he was. But he possessed this emotional detachment. He didn't really have time for issues outside of science, and he didn't really have a lot of time for the lives of others. That would have detracted from his own work. One of his colleagues said that Richard had emanated this, uh, sorry, this sense of unconscious intimidation. And indeed, Malcolm Pike, who I'll mention later, one of his earlier disciples, said that Richard was a scary person to be around. And Richard was a private man, and he kept people at bay with good manners. And I think Richard was, it's true, because of his good manners and because of his status, he was respected and yet part-feared. And Richard may have been surprised by it, but I think for those people who were nervous around him, he could scare to be Jesus out of you if you felt that you'd somehow got some work wrong in front of him. So he had this unusual ability to camouflage his emotions. Also, I don't know if he's here today, but a famous Oxford physician, John Ledingham, was once asked to write an obituary of Richard in the 1990s, and Dole didn't die until 2005. And the editor of the newspaper, The Times, in fact, said, um, great CV, but where's the man? And I felt I had to do better, better than that. So my book today, and the book um, we're going to talk about, a part of his life is called Smoking Kills, the Revolutionary Life of Richard Dole. And briefly, I'd like to talk about the early political revolution in Richard's life that brought him to be such an important person um, in the public health of Britain, especially in post-war Britain. And the connection between his politics and his love of mathematics and how this drove him into preventive medicine. Um, he ushered in this new era in medicine, 
the intellectual ascendancy of medical statistics. And it was a revolution, but it was the earlier political revolution that I think helped him realise that aim. Now, Richard, he started life far from being a revolutionary. He had a very bourgeois background. He went to Westminster School, and here we can see him with his Eton collar. Um, and, uh, in fact, he, uh, he lived in the shadow of Harrods. His father was a GP. There was a chauffeur. And his mum was a celebrated concert pianist. So there was no really... There was no feeling that uh, there was any political revolution there. Um, Dahl was highly intelligent, um, and at uh, <coughs> Westminster School, he was offered a closed scholarship um, to Cambridge. Um, he didn't take that. He went for an open scholarship, but actually didn't win that. But he said, well, when you're young, intelligence is defining. But as you get older, the ability to organise your time and your effort becomes more important. And Dahl was intelligent, but he was also incredibly organised. Um, this journey at school, he was trying to find his place in the world, and he started out as a Christian fundamentalist. And Richard Dahl used to cycle out with a Bible, believe it or not, trying to win hearts and souls uh, and pursuing converts. Um, he lost his faith in God. Uh, he had a younger brother who predeceased him, Christopher, who's a Spitfire pilot in the Second World War, a great achiever as well. But when Christopher, when it came his turn to be confirmed, he decided that he couldn't live up to the ideals of, of being confirmed. So he decided he, he would decline the offer. And Richard at this stage decided that he wanted to be unconfirmed. So he wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury, unbelievably got a reply, but the, uh, the letter said, uh, sorry, but once you're confirmed before God, that's it, it's irreversible. Um, also, while at Westminster School, he, he became a pacifist, and he was um, greatly influenced by the Reverend Dick Shepherd, who was the vicar of St. Martin's in the field, but he too rejected this. If you were at Westminster School, one of the things you could do, you could go into the House of Commons at any time. And here he saw um, Keir Hardy speaking, David Lloyd George, and the one he really liked was Tom Maxton, who was a Marxist and an independent Labour MP in Scotland. And Richard liked him because he said Maxton didn't bend. Um, also in 1930, uh, Richard would have been 18, or almost 18 then, he got special dispensation from the headmaster of Westminster School to go to the first meeting of Oswald Mosley's new party. Mosley was still on the left of British politics then. Um, but when he was at uh, Westminster School, he met Kim Philby, who later, of course, went on to great notoriety as a, an apostle. And uh, Dole said Philby had no influence on his politics whatsoever. They, uh, he knew him, but uh, Philby wasn't interested in spreading any great word. But while he was at school, Richard joined the Young Communist League. And um, by the time he entered St. Thomas's Hospital in 1937, um, he was a, a committed socialist. And the anarchy and waste that he saw in the slums of Lambeth um, made him believe even more that the only way out of the economic uh, depression of the period was via the Communist Party. And in fact, for his 21st birthday, he went to the Soviet Union and um, was slightly brainwashed. He said he saw workers happy and he went to places like um, the Park of Rest and Comfort or something like that. But anyway, uh, he was greatly taken by it. And the other thing that influenced Richard in his early life was the Socialist Medical Association um, under the leadership of 
Somerville Hastings, who was a great surgeon, uh, a famous man. He used to invite people like Richard around to his house for drinks, although Somerville Hastings didn't drink alcohol. And the Socialist Medical Association and the Communist Party were the two nexus, this sort of social nexus that really influenced Richard and many of his generation. And... uh, their ideas that they formulated in the 30s were carried out really into the post-war, post-Second World War era. Also in the 1930s, Richard um, became under the influence of the Swiss Marxist physician Henry Ziegerist and the Ziegerist Society Richard used to go to after the war. And uh, Ziegerist said he wanted a people's war on health. And in fact, he said, we have reached a time in which the physician must assume leadership in the struggle for the improvement of conditions. So you can see that idealistic doctors like Richard Dahl um, were definitely going to be influenced by that. Um, Dahl himself um, visited Germany many times in the 1930s, and in my book I I dealt with when he visited Germany and how he could see how Nazi ideology had entered into medical teaching in Germany. Um, there was one occasion um, where people thought that Doll was a Jew and they made him stand on a table. Apparently, one of the things that um, young German medical students thought was that Jews had uh, wider, larger, fatter ankles. Um, uh, yes, and uh, so anyway, they measured Richard's ankles and, he, he, as he said, he had thin ankles. So nothing became of that. But he, um, he definitely was uh, an implacable opponent of fascism. And Richard wanted to do all he could to join the war effort. And, in fact, uh, Richard joined up and had an incredibly exciting war. Um, he, uh, he was in France um, about a week before the outbreak of war. And he worked for about six months as a GP, really, delivering babies and having an excellent time and perfecting his French, which he did. Um, he was also later in charge of an infectious disease hospital. So I must say he was at Dunkirk, which I've covered in the book. Uh, he was an infectious disease hospital in Cairo, worked in Cyprus, was at the Salerno landings, this famous soft belly of the invasion. There was nothing soft about it at all. And in fact, Richard, uh, he uh, lost a kidney to tuberculosis in 1944. And the army, in fact, uh, paid him a 33% pension um, up until uh, his death because of that. They assumed that he'd contracted it um, in the war, but as he said, all medical students realised as they looked around each other at the start of their course, they knew at least one or two of them would die of tuberculosis um, during the the next few years. Um, After six years' war service, um, Dole's interest in mathematics and social medicine... um, directed him to enrol at a course run by Bradford Hill, who was his great mentor. And this course was called Essentials in Statistics at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And Dahl, along with Jerry Morris, Dahl's wife, uh, Joan Faulkner, they were also under course. It was a very idealistic group of people. And somewhat prophetically, Hill wrote, he wrote this to Harold Hemsworth, who was later the leader of the... uh, the Secretary of the uh, Medical Research Council. I regard Richard Dahl as a very good worker to whom it is well worthwhile giving a wider experience in medical statistical work with an eye to the future. 
as you know, the number of medical persons who take it all kindly to careful statistical work is still small. Um, a remarkable person, uh, Bradford Hill, and I've, one of the chapters in my book, I've called it uh, No Hill, No Doll, and it's true. Um, and I think that Richard's politics and that period after the war, where it was very difficult to get jobs, prevented him from having a, a conventional career in, in uh, hospital medicine. And I know he's never, he never gave a lecture at St. Thomas's, and he was a... Uh, Although he said he should have been forgiven, um, he was known as Red Richard and the wards of St. Thomas's for, for many years afterwards. Um, I think what's interesting, and Hill wrote about it, was that uh, Hill thought that Richard was an obsessional person, you know, obsessional about religion, obsessional about pacifism, then obsessional about being a communist. And Richard remained in the Communist Party until 1958. Um, and it was a uh, a very important uh, part of his life. But while on the one hand Richard politically was extremely radical, I think it's important to remember that scientifically he was rather conservative. And one of the accusations against Richard was that uh, later in the Green Movement and um, the Environmentalist Movement that they thought Richard was slow to move. And it's true, I think Dole didn't put his name above anything unless the evidence was overwhelming. And this is one of the criticisms I, I deal with later in the book. But certainly I think that is a counterpoint in his life, um, that he was politically radical but scientifically conservative. And as I say here, uh, he wanted to be a valuable member of society, but um, Richard was never really around for his family, and his daughter um, used to call him Richard and not dad. And I think once he got wrapped up in uh, data, in statistics, it just overwhelmed him. And as Hill said, Hill didn't take kindly to, to, to Dull's communism. He said, once you get obsessional about data, you haven't got time for anything else. Let's have a look here at some of the, uh, at the story, really, of Richard Dull um, and where he started his work. His, the first paper that he published was in 1950, and it's quite interesting just to see the prevalence of smoking in Britain. It was quite an extraordinary time. And over that period, Dole's first paper um, on his famous doctor's study, where they wrote to every doctor in Britain, 60,000 doctors in 1951, 40,000 replied, and they followed them, first paper in 1954... And on the 26th of June, 2004, 50 years afterwards, Dahl uh, published the findings of the 50-year study. It's an extraordinary, and it was the first ever prospective study into smoking and death in the world. And we can see during that period of his lifetime, Dahl undoubtedly, more than any other physician, was responsible for a change in the smoking behaviour. And this is the... Uh, the famous quote that Dahl wrote in the year 2000, um, which is uh, on the introduction to a book by his colleague, his great colleague, Sir Richard Pito. And Pito and Dahl worked together um, between 1967 and right up until Dahl's death. And here we can see the, the change and the impact um, that Dahl's work has had 
in Britain and around the world trying to bring home to people that smoking is one of the most dangerous things that uh, one can do. Now, for the purposes of today's talk, what I'd like us to do is to go back in history and suspend our disbelief uh, to a time when no one knew about the hazards of smoking and when the habit was regarded as innocuous. Um, Smoking was such a common habit in 1950 and just after the war that people could not accept that it could do them any harm. Um, Britain was the first country in the world to become addicted pharmacologically and indeed socially to cigarettes. And in the ninth, from between 1920 and 1940, cancer, lung cancer went up sixfold in Britain. At the end of the Second World War, British men had the highest rates of lung cancer in the world and no one knew why. Now, lung cancer had been seen in Germany uh, in 1898 in Leipzig amongst tobacco, people who worked in tobacco factories. And as part of their work, they were given free, uh, free cigarettes. And indeed, Müller, Schrerer and Schroeniger. Now, Müller's an interesting guy because Müller's paper and Schrerer and Schroeniger, they were all scientists who were working in Nazi Germany. And they produced certainly work um, that was... <coughs> disseminated within Germany, but it didn't really get out into the non-fascist world, non-fascist scientific world. Although, Dolan Hill's first paper in 1950 did cite Müller's work. Um, Pearl, an American statistician who worked for an insurance company, he'd noticed in 1938 that smoking of tobacco was statistically associated with an impairment of life duration, and the amount and degree of the impairment increased as the habitual amount of smoking increased. But in 1947, nobody knew why there was this incredible epidemic, and there was a a meeting at the Medical Research Council, um, then led uh, by, um, not Harold Hemsworth, um, Edward Mallonby, And all of the great people of England were there, scientists. Alice Stewart was there, for example, in in place of John Ryle, our own professor of social medicine here. Bradford Hill, Percy Stocks. And it was decided then that there there was going to be uh, an investigation into this. And Bradford Hill was given the task of designing a study. And he did this in 1950. And in order to have... Uh, access to medical records, he decided that he would give Richard Doll a job. And on the 1st of January 1948, Bradford Hill and Richard Doll started their retrospective study of lung cancer in 20 London hospitals. At the time, over 80% of British men smoked. And because of this social and economic emancipation of the two world wars, nearly 40% of women smoked as well. By the end of 1949, so just within a year, or uh, nearly, in fact, 20 months, the position was so clear that Dolan Hill had written a paper on the findings of their 709 lung cancer and control patients, drawing the conclusion that smoking is a factor and an important factor in carcinoma of the lung. Now, Howard Hemsworth, who was the leader of the MRC, he believed their work But he thought that maybe they should be cautious. Maybe there was something atypical about London, the greatest metropolis in in England, 
and about the social conditions there, that before publishing, he said, why don't you extend a study and take it outside to uh, hospitals in the rest of England, which they did to four centres in Edinburgh, Bristol, Leeds and Newcastle. Um, and, but within a few months, Winder and Graham, two young Americans, or one very young American doctor, they published their own study and they found a similar finding in the United States of America that Dole and Hill had found in England. So Dole and Hill then rushed out their paper and they published it on the 30th of September 1950. And in fact, uh, one of the things that people think that Richard Dole, um, he really discovered between the link between smoking and lung cancer. In 1950, there were five papers, four in America and one in Britain. But the Winder and Graham and the Doll and Hill papers stand out because of the power of their study and also um, the clarity of the findings that they had. Nevertheless, even though they were able to show that smokers, heavy smokers, had a 50 times greater chance of getting lung cancer than non-smokers, um, there was a great reluctance on the part of most cancer workers, most physicians, and most statisticians to accept their conclusions. Only one thing stood out, really, um, that in any way was worrying. And that piece of evidence was that there was a doubt of causal collection, sorry, a causal connection, namely the lack of a positive relationship with inhaling. And uh, what they found was that in their study, the people who had lung cancer inhaled less than people who didn't have the disease. And this led um, Dole to write... It would be natural to suppose that if smoking were harmful, it would be more harmful if the smoke were inhaled. In fact, whether the patients inhaled or not did not seem to make any difference. It is possible that the patients were not fully aware of the meaning of the term and answered incorrectly, but the interviewers were not of that opinion. In the present state of knowledge, it is more reasonable to accept the finding and wait until the size of the smoke particle which carries the carcinogen is determined. Until that is shown, nothing can be stated with the effect which any alteration in the rate and depth of respiration may have on the state and site of deposition of the carcinoma. However, in 1958, Sir Ronald Fisher found the anomaly sufficient to destroy the validity of our conclusion. Um, but before we get to Fisher, it is important to remember that there was widespread opposition, even antagonism, to Dolan Hill's finding that smoking was so fatal. Um, at the time, Sir John Charles was the chief medical officer, and he was reluctant to believe what Dolan Hill had found out. And he used to write lengthy reports, and he said, yes, this epidemic of lung cancer, the reasons for it are mysterious and inexorable to rise. And um, Horace Jules, who was a colleague of Richard's at the Central Middlesex Hospital, Dole between... Um, 1946 and 1969 was a gastroenterologist practicing two days a week at the centre in Middlesex. Horace Jules, an extraordinary man, also a communist, but he really did take up the cause that smoking was a great danger facing uh, British society. And when he used to meet Sir Charles, Sir John Charles in corridors, he used to mumble at him, mm, mysterious, inexorable. Um, and also in the United States of America, um, a man called Berkson, who was a leading statistician, he had this Berkson fallacy. He thought that 
you can't do uh, accurate studies in hospitals because the people who go to hospital are probably more likely to have a disease or cough more. Also, to cancer research workers, no carcinogen had been proven. They couldn't find a carcinogen in cigarette smoke. Physicians, doctors in Britain, had no understanding of the power and validity of large-scale case control studies in the investigation of non-infectious disease. And also, doctors smoked more than the general population. Doctors could smoke in old age because they had more money. And Dolan Hill had turned the old science of epidemiology, which had been used by Snow in infectious diseases, and they turned it around to look at non-infectious diseases. Um, And theirs was a remarkable piece of observational epidemiology. Um, Of course, the tobacco companies understandably said the work was unscientific, and they they used to come round to Dolan Hill's offices and... um, the London School of Hygiene, and they brought with them their own statistician, a very able man, Geoffrey Todd, and Todd said, no, it's not, it's, it's not cigarettes, it's to do with air pollution. It's obvious. And Geoffrey um, uh, Todd, of course, in the end, came round to believe uh, Dolan Hill. And, of course, the political class in Britain in 1950, they didn't want to believe this because they were as addicted um, to smoking as the democracy that they represented. Harold Hemsworth, who at the time was the only practicing clinician ever to be the head of the MRC, he said the finding would be a sensation. This would really rock the nation. Um, but he couldn't have been more wrong because the work of Hillendahl, their first paper, pointing the accusatory finger at cigarettes, was either disbelieved, attacked as unscientific, or generally ignored. There wasn't an appetite for it. In view of the scepticism which their results were generally received with, it was obvious that they were going to have to come up with something else. And this is when the idea um, dawned on Bradford Hill that what they should do was find a group of people that would be easy to follow. Now, if you're a doctor, you're on a British medical register if you want to, if you want to practice. Um, people who could probably fill in a questionnaire, keep it simple, simple questionnaire, and also... Um, people who would have accurate death death certification. So if you're a doctor and you die of something, your friends usually try and find out exactly what it is you died of. And this led Bradford Hill to write this famous letter in November 1951 to 60,000 British doctors. They got 40,000 replies. They they had a pilot study before, and Dole ran a pilot study where he took um, the name from the top left-hand corner of every second page, not truly random, but nearly, um, of every doctor in Britain, wrote to them and then saw how many replies they'd get back. And in fact, one of them famously was Harold Hemsworth. But they got 40,000 replies when they sent out the letter. And uh, they, got, uh, they then took the women out of it because women hadn't been smoking for so long. And anybody, any doctors under 35. And then they followed that population of British doctors. It was the first prospective study um, in the world. And they followed them, Dole followed them for 50 years. And what he wanted to do, Dole wanted to do, was to see if there was an element of prediction. If we have people in hospital with this disease as presented, and we go back over their lifestyles, and interestingly, in the, uh, when they analysed the people in 20 London hospitals, only 11 of the 50 questions were about cigarettes. There were other questions. Do you cook on gas? 
Um, do you cook uh, with electricity? Do you live near a gasometer? What kind of firing do you have? Do you eat lard? There were 50 questions, and he'll call it his fearsome questionnaire. And the interesting thing was that in 1948 and in 1950, both Dahl and Hill smoked. Dahl smoked a pipe and um, non-tip cigarettes. And he smoked from the age of 17 for 19 years until 1948, until he realised how dangerous it was. Hill, on the other hand, according to his daughter, um, he found it hard to give up his pipe. Um, when he used to write his beautiful lectures, he used to read them to his dog. And he said the dog was very, very well informed. Um, and uh, he uh, eventually decided to ceremonially bury his pipe. Um, so there, the idea behind a prospective one was to see if there was an element of prediction. Could we then have this theory that if we get people smoking behaviour and follow them into the future, we would be able to predict what they die of. And that was the, the idea behind it. And within two and a half years, both qualitatively and quantitatively, they already had enough fatalities within the doctors to find out that there was a dose-response relationship. The heavier the smoking, the more chance of getting into disease. Um, and this was very important. Um, Doll and Hill were meticulous, careful, not prone to over-optimism. As a scientist, you don't want to be over-optimistic. You don't want to be hoping that, that the result's going to come that way. And in fact, Hammond, who started just afterwards, an American, he started a much bigger study in America of 190,000 people. And he said to Dahl, I'm going to do this study prospectively, find out what these people are smoking, then let's see what kills them. And he said, and I'm going to prove that you're wrong. But within a very short period of time, Hammond had come up with the same findings that Dahl, Dahl and Hill had done. Now, it may seem incongruous today, but Dahl and Hill didn't lead a campaign based on their own discoveries. They would support other epidemiologists if they were doing studies in something else. But about their own work, they thought their responsibility was to come up with the best information. Not what you should do based on that evidence. Otherwise, you might become politically tarnished or you might become biased to try and protect your great discovery. So their idea was to put out the best information that we could get and then stand back and let society make judgments upon that. And in fact, I remember in, I think it was 2002, being with Richard Dahl in, in Westminster. There's a great meeting of uh, British cancer experts and people were asking about, you know, hands up for outright ban, ban on smoking and Richard didn't go for it then. He thought, no, the democracy, you have to wait until that comes. So they were not advocates. They were not openly campaigning. They just put out the best evidence that they could. However, but it, it didn't stop Richard saying this about their dose-response relationship. I don't know of any epidemiological evidence since Snow's work on cholera that was so conclusive that a 50-fold increase in risk for heavy smokers. I mean, it's extraordinary. How could you miss it? How could you? Um, incidentally, Dole thought that Snow's work on cholera was the greatest piece of epidemiology ever done. Exactly, nearly 100 years before, before their own work. Now, Dole and Hill 
The reason why there was a reluctance to accept their work was because they brought with them an uncomfortable truth. And at the time in Britain, about 14% of the government's revenue came from tax on tobacco. Now, this was at a time when we had the National Health Service. And Aaron Bevan said, on the 6th of April, 1945, Dole was in the House of Commons, said, we're doing the greatest thing. We are putting the care of the sick before every other consideration. And also we had the welfare state. And this cost money. So that was an uncomfortable truth. Also, the government didn't want to create, believe it or not, they didn't want to create a cancer scare. Christ, you know, it would really frighten people. Um, But the thought that the discovery that the most common fatal cancer could be eliminated by a change in lifestyles was a great opportunity in public health. And remember, the NHS was pledged to protect the people of Britain, both in terms of public health medicine and in terms of clinical invasive work. Lord Beaverbrook, the press baron, told his journalists not to write about cancer. This is going to upset people at their breakfast table, knowing that what they're doing is, you know, unpalatable. Um, And the Ministry of Health advised by scientific committees to have people like Ernest Rock Carling, you know, unbelievably great man, a, a great man and a great surgeon. But he didn't believe in the monocausal explanation. And he advised the government and the Ministry, Ministry of Health that it was premature to base conclusions on the work of Dolan Hill. Also, Dolan Hill's work came at a very important time because in the 1950, for the first time, deaths from lung cancer exceeded those from tuberculosis. And really, Dole was at this tipping point. You could see he was in really the right place at the right time. What, what used to kill people in Britain, what killed your great-great-grandparents, if you're from here, um, was infectious diseases. And what's going to kill most of us would be the chronic diseases. Um, and... Uh, It was just that tipping point, 1950, first time lung cancer takes more people than tuberculosis. So it's that paradigm shift in in British health. And in British, gradually, I mean, particularly through the work of of Bradford Hill and streptomycin, um, tuberculosis was becoming under control. Also, that's quite good, um, one of the things about uh, Dolan Hill's work was that it contradicted the foundations of diagnostic medicine of the great German bacteriologist Robert Koch, Koch's postulates, which said that in a disease, the organism which creates that disease should be in every case of that disease. Now, in Dole and Hill's 1950 paper, they found people with lung cancer who had never smoked. This was going to be a a problem. And um, still today over nearly 90% of all lung cancers are found within those who smoke. But still, 10% of people get lung cancer um, who've never smoked. By 1954, it was becoming increasingly difficult to silence Dolan Hill's findings. Ian MacLeod, the health minister, a good man, no doubt about it, a good man, he said, OK, we'll make recommendations that smoking is dangerous, but can we do it as quietly as possible? And famously, in 1954, he held a press conference, thanked Dolan Hill for their work, and smoked four Piccadillys 
four cigarettes, chain smoke four cigarettes while he was doing it. I mean, it was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. Um, but the most important discovery, and why Dole is the, the greatest cancer epidemiologist in the 20th century, and why he's one of those few uh, physicians whose name resonates outside of medicine and maybe across the world, is that the most important discovery in the history of cancer epidemiology is the carcinogenic effect of tobacco. It's the great big one. And one of Dole's great intuitive skills was that he could discern a pattern. It's a great thing if you've got it. Um, And Dole, in 1953, based on the statistics he had in front of him, he made a prediction. He said, if things remain the same, and indeed, as the population who smoke are maturing, getting older, I think in 20 years' time, in 1973, based on my observational predictions, I think the death toll from lung cancer in 1973 will be 25,000. And Dole was wrong. It was 26,000. So you begin to see now the idea that you're able to postulate into the future. Epidemiological science changed the ways in which causes of disease would be investigated and understood. But this would only be after Dolan Hill had successfully repelled a withering attack from Sir Ronald Fisher, a genius of medical science, and what a formidable opponent he was. This is just an example. Now, I am not, um, I know there are people here, I've spoken to uh, Peter Armitage, Richard Pito, um, Ian Chalmers, people who are experts on the work of Fisher. Fisher, no contest, absolutely a giant, Sm- smart, brilliant, um, heartless, um, original, um, and he set, he gave so much theoretical uh, guidelines to Hill and to Dahl. Um, Malcolm Pike, who I mentioned at the beginning, who said Dahl was a scary person to be around. One of the things about Dahl was that he really listened to you when you were talking. And people aren't used to this. And when you started talking to Richard, unless you were saying something, you know, he was a very busy man, the body language might change. The watch would be looked at. You know, you had to be sort of careful. But, But Pike, you know, was a... Uh, his career was made by his work with Richard Dahl and he worked with Richard in London and then and in Oxford but when Malcolm was a, a DPhil student at Cambridge he went along to a talk um, by, by Fisher and at the time there was a, a philosophical uh, difference between uh, Nyman uh, an American and Fisher and Fisher was explaining this and Malcolm couldn't quite follow it so he put his hand up and he, he said to Fisher would you, would you mind Uh, I don't quite understand that. And Fisher came down from the podium, sat beside him and said, Sonny, the reason why you don't understand it is that you have a brain of a peanut. (laughs) Now, small potatoes, that was. But uh, no wonder Doll and Hill had a battle on their hands. But what was it that triggered the wrath of Fisher? You know, this is late on now. It's not 1950. Um, After all, Doll and Hill were incredibly meticulous, very careful. Very careful, not prone to overexcitement, checked everything. And their evidence, even if they had it in the, in the late 50s, the evidence suggested that one in eight smokers died of lung cancer against one in 300 non smokers. I mean, it would just be startling if I had it on a graph for you. And Dolan Hill knew only too well 
that correlation does not prove causation. In 1956, they wrote this. And this is cautious, isn't it? In scientific work, it is never possible to exclude entirely an alternative explanation of observations. But we ourselves believe that the accumulated evidence today is such as to denote a cause and effect relationship. Now, different people give different meaning to cause. What was undeniable was that some lucky people, unlucky people who did not smoke, got the disease. Therefore, in the philosophical terms, cigarettes are not necessary or sufficient to prove that you're going to get cancer. And Badol and Hill were able to show that prolonged smoking resulted in a rare disease becoming ten times as common as it would in the absence of the habit. Now, you don't get things like that in other diseases. You don't get overwhelming evidence. 1957 marked a breakthrough in Britain. In June of that year, the Medical Research Council told the British government that smoking definitely caused lung cancer. And it was the first national institution that did so. Um, Two days later, so the British government are now being mandated um, by their Medical Advisory Council that they must take some action, that there is definitely a connection between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And two days later, the British Medical Journal um, wrote its famous article called Dangers of Cigarette Smoking. Its opening sentence was unequivocal. The MRC has now informed the government that a direct causal connection exists between tobacco smoking and lung cancer. It also said smoking caused coronary thrombosis, cancer of the mouth, and some would add a delusion that smoking is harmless. Um, It also noted that R.A. Fisher had agreed to become a scientific consultant to the Tobacco Manufacturers Committee. The BMJ article ended with a sentence that sent a depth charge into Fisher's natural disputatious nature, that the hazards of smoking were undeniable, hazards that must be brought home to the public with all the modern devices of publicity. Now, this was abhorrent to Fisher. It reminded him of the uses of propaganda during the Second World War. And this violated, this article violated a whole trend of Fisher's philosophy, for it contradicted one of his sacred principles of scientific inference. Correlation must not be accepted as causation. Now, I'm not an authority on Fisher. So I'm not a statistician, and there may be some here. And he was an incredibly complex man, a libertarian, an inveterate pipe smoker, and he was capable of being a good friend, but not a generous enemy. Now, I don't know if you can be a generous enemy, but indeed his biographer, and I recommended you to read it. It's a rocking biography. And as his daughter, she must have known him more thoroughly than most. And this is what his biographer wrote. It's a great picture of, of him there. He seemed inhuman in his lack of consideration of others, capable of rough-handling those who opposed him with ready-made arguments that he treated with contempt. He was sometimes arbitrary and disagreeable, and he was recalcitrant to any form of coercion. And that was certainly true. Um, Fisher acknowledged that statistics had gained a place of modest usefulness in medical research, but did not, he didn't, relish the prospect of this science being now discredited by a catastrophic howler. So Fisher thought something was really up and Dolan Hill were to blame. 
In the beginning, Fisher's criticism seemed scientific in origin. And it's true. In 1950, their case control study, so when they were in the hospitals, they reported smokers with lung cancer inhaling less than those without the disease. 62% against 67 Seems extraordinary. And this is what Fisher said about it. It's great, really. There is nothing to stop those who greatly desire it from believing that lung cancer is caused by smoking cigarettes. This should also be believed that inhaling cigarettes is a protection. To believe either is, however, to run the risk of failing to recognise and therefore failing to prevent other and more genuine causes. In addition to the inhaling anomaly, Fisher cited three further criticisms. He said, firstly, it's conspicuous and obvious to all of us, if you look around, if you've been living in Britain in the 50s, that it's women who are starting to smoke much more than men. The second thing he said is that it was possible that the cancer caused smoking. Why not? Um, You know, A and B, it could cause smoking rather than the other way around. If it suggested a development of the disease was preceded by malignant changes that caused irritation. So smoking would actually <coughs> ease your discomfort. Thirdly, and this was a tricky one, there might be some common genetic common factor responsible for the individual's habit, so you smoke for genetic reasons, and getting the disease. So to be together. And in fact, he carried out studies of twins from one egg and twins from two eggs, and seeing if twins from one egg, identical twins, how they would um, have smoking habits that were different if they were in different parts of the world, if they weren't brought up together. Now, the lung cancer and inhaling anomaly not only created a scientific dispute, it transcended the accepted parameters of statistical interpretation into the realms of personal integrity, Um, Now, most of the heavy artillery fire, it got nasty, um, was between Hill and Fisher. And the atmosphere was genuinely neuralgic um, and and vicious from the point of view of of Fisher. Um, But Dahl and Hill owed Fisher a great deal. His ideas of randomisation, Hill had used on his trial trial of uh, streptomycin, in the treatment of tuberculosis. And the randomised controlled clinical trial today is the only way we know whether drugs are good, working, or bad for us. So, no doubt about it, Hill's greatest contribution to to medicine, um, he got the idea of randomisation from Fisher. Also, when Dahl was a medical student, he read Fisher's book, Statistical Methods for Research Workers. He could understand very little of it. The only thing he got was Pearson's chi-squared test, which you can use to analyse chance in an investigation. And from that, Dahl was able to write his first scientific paper while still a medical student. So they were in Fisher's death. Also, Fisher, in the 1930s, offered Hill a job, which uh, Hill graciously declined. And Fisher even supported Hill's nomination to be a fellow of the Royal Society. Fisher and Hill were um, uh, important people. They represented august organisations. They were around about the same age. Um, 
But there was an element of jealousy from Fisher towards Hill. Because I think Hill was widely widely respected for his teaching, for the clarity of his thought, and also his brilliance with uh, mathematics. But of course, he could never be as brilliant as Fisher. Nobody was. Nobody could be as as, uh, clear thinking in terms of mathematics, could have invented so many clever tools of analysis. Um, And it was certainly true, I think, that Fisher resented the status that Hill had um, within clinical medicine. (coughs) Fisher's thesis that inhaling cigarette smoke was a practice of considerable prophylactic value in preventing the disease was based on his interpretation of the the 647 men and the 41 women with, uh, with lung cancer. And this simple association triggered something in, uh, in, in Fisher. And he asked Dolan Hill for the original data of the 1950 case control study. Now, by this time, in the late 50s, Dolan Hill had data on 1,400 cases of lung cancer. And they gave this data to Fisher. Fisher rejected it. What he said he wanted was the 1950 data, since it sort of fitted his idea more. And on each time uh, when Dolan Hill gave him the data, he rejected it. And uh, it turned out that what Fisher then accused Dolan Hill of doing was suppressing data, that they were withholding data from them, from him. And um, this, really, everything started to turn nasty then. And in 1958, Dole went to Cambridge and he addressed a meeting of medical students with Fisher. And they were going to have a debate. But once Fisher had just made his statement, he went off and he, he didn't wait um, for the, uh, the public debate to follow. And indeed, in 1958, at a meeting of the National Institute of Health, Fisher said to the audience that Hill didn't deserve his FRS, that he wasn't worthy of it. So it was really nasty. And eventually, after about a year, Dolan Hill got their 1950 data and sent it off to Fisher. Now, Fisher was conscious that he had a superior brain, but it was the manner in which he imposed his views that left so much human debris in his wake. Dolan Hill were not the first scientist to incur his opprobrium, and it seemed that this was in the capacity of his nature. Now, one of um, Fisher's great students is Sir Walter Bodmer. I don't know if Walter's here today. Um, and he admired greatly Fisher's acknowledged status as a as brilliant thinker, but he also recognised the complexity of Fisher's personality. Fisher was a proud man in addition to his sensitivity, and this undoubtedly explained some of the antagonistic interactions he developed with scientific colleagues. Fisher wrote a book in 1958 called Smoking, the Cancer Controversy, which became popular and it advanced a thesis that it was not smoking but a genetic common factor that was responsible for the disease. And it read like a polemical battering ram against Dolan Hill. The media and the tobacco industry encouraged the thesis. Now, it was 20 years before Dole could say that it wasn't a genetic factor, that it was something genetically in people that made them smoke and also gave them the disease. And this is when he did his first 20-year study um, 
of British doctors. And he found out that when some doctors gave up smoking, I mean, once doctors realised that smoking wasn't just killing their patients, it was killing them, they began to give up in big numbers. So once doctors gave up, the risk of lung cancer in the whole population of doctors fell relative to the rest of the population. So doctors were the first group to give up. Fisher, on the other hand, said that this would not make any difference because people who gave up were those who were not susceptible to developing the disease. So that couldn't be true. Um, In the 1950s, the British people were more worried about nuclear annihilation, um, about food rationing, than they were about cigarettes. And Fisher certainly thought that British people should be worried about um, the disease of lung cancer, but he didn't think the mild and soothing weed was responsible for it. And the forces of resistance to Dolan Hill's research were manifest. Um, smoking rates were still on the increase. Women didn't... It was more than until about 1970 when the media fully got behind um, the campaign that we begin to see a decline in both sexes. Um, the government remained reluctant to take on the cause of public health and the tobacco advertising industry stressed the life-enhancing qualities of cigarettes, and they still do. Um, Fisher had, however left himself open to accusations of venality. As I mentioned earlier, and the BMJ had noticed in 1956 that uh, he'd become a, uh, an advisor to the, man- to the Tobacco Manufacturers Committee. And as Hill said, um, Fisher was vain enough to think that people wouldn't connect him with that, that he wasn't in some way um, saying things for the benefit of being paid. I don't think he was either. Um, Fisher was both a scientist and a libertarian. He also disliked any puritanical tendencies. Now, Doll and Hill were not puritanical, but they were portrayed like that in the papers. Um, Hill used to do uh, cases about venereal disease. Um, they were always portrayed as these spoil sports in the media, grey-haired uh, puritans, but they were nothing like that. And it is true, Fisher did get great solace from tobacco. But he was no ordinary critic. His book... Smoking, the cancer controversy, was convincing to the uninformed reader, who has a style, a mixture of fixation against the supposed lack of clear thinking, of moral outrage against the excesses of the political class, against the life of the individual, and of course it advocated a primacy of randomization. Fisher placed paramount emphasis on the need for randomization in order to obtain valid estimates of error. And this was the centre of his mathematical universe, and you can see why. But it was his Achilles heel in interpreting cause and proof in clinical medicine. Um, This is what he said of the work of Dole, Hill and Hammond. It's a brilliant piece of thinking. He used to say to people, that's not an experiment you've got there, that's an experience. But look what he said. It is not the fault of Dahl and Hill and Hammond, Hammond's the American, that they cannot produce evidence which a thousand children of teenage have been laid under a ban that they shall never smoke, and a thousand more chosen at random, at random, from the same age group, have been under compulsion to smoke at least 30 cigarettes a day. If that type of experiment could be done, there would be no difficulty. The thing is, you can't do that in society. Fisher underestimated the accuracy of non-randomised evidence in the art of examining observational data. This was a grave confusion of thought on his part. 
And he voiced his concerns that a, a whole group of intelligent statisticians were being sent out with a dense fog uh, in the place where their brains ought to be. But if anyone was impeding a national effort to discover and prevent the disease, it was Fisher. Uh, Walter Bodmer, Fisher's uh, antagonism, he believed, on the data on smoking and lung cancer, developed as a response to deductive reasoning from observational facts and to the inferences that those facts warrant. He thus sought common causes, and this is Bodmer, who's a great supporter of him, such as genetic factors, but without at a time really being aware of the strength of the association and the unlikelihood of it being due to a common cause rather than a direct effect. For all of his advocacy of clear thinking and deductive reasoning, Fisher did not cease to speak out in opposition to the epidemiological evidence. Um, Now, even Walter Bodmer, one of his most dedicated supporters, points the finger at the British Medical Journal's editorial that the dangers of smoking must be brought home to the public with all of the modern devices of publicity. That was the contagious germ, Bodmer thinks, that affected his whole thinking. And according to Bodmer, that was actually the ticket to his antagonism. The other arguments developed subsequently. So he made his science get behind. And it was extraordinary. Even in 1960, on a lecture tour of Australia, he said, and he had big audiences going, opinion in England has been somewhat softened up and several of my points seem to have been taken seriously. Now, facts are stubborn things. And even at the end of his life, um, in 1962, Fisher seems um, to uh, have given up or believed that the weaknesses of his common cause were definitely there. And if he hadn't died, according to Bodmer, he would have written something. But we believe there was a kind of an apostasy. And at the end, he said that smoking was a cofactor. Now, in epidemiology, a cofactor is a factor. But for Richard Dahl, the damage had been done. Fisher's opposition um, had an international significance, and it provided the tobacco industry with a defence that the smoking and lung cancer link was controversial. Mental endeavour, the clash of personality and rigorous argument are all aids to thought and the discovery of scientific truth. This, alas, was not such an occasion. Fisher delayed the acceptance that tobacco causes cancer together with the urgent public health campaign that was needed to mitigate or prevent the consequences for smokers. What Fisher did not understand, and Dolan Hill did, was that if people started smoking early and continued smoking then you had a 50% chance of being killed by the habit. And in Britain, in 1964, after all of Dole and Hill's clarity of thought, meticulous calculations, still only one smoker in three believed that smoking caused cancer. Now, one simple observation can be made from this anatomy of a scientific dispute, and that is the importance of character, how it forms a relationship with science and between scientists. And Fisher may well be the greatest of all Darwin's disciples, and his exalted status as an evolutionary biologist is permanent and deserved. But he too was both a product and a casualty of the slow evolutionary scale of human psychology. He got it wrong for jealous reasons. Thanks very much.